We're in the middle of our three-week series that's directed primarily to those on the periphery of Christianity or those who struggle with doubts or for believers who just need to be more secure in their faith. I can see that Dr. Burrell is a man after my own heart in uh, this faith series study that he wants to do, and I encourage all of you to, as many as possible, to, to participate in that. It's so important that we know. The Bible says, be prepared to give a reason for the faith that is within you. Christianity is not a blind, unintelligent, intellectually suicidal leap of faith. It's based on solid convictions, on solid reasoning, on solid evidence. Last week we talked about the question of why believe the Bible. The host of uh, books that we could have, why think the Bible is, is anything special. We gave reasons for that. This morning we want to ask this question, why believe in Jesus Christ? Or maybe even more fundamentally, who was Jesus Christ? Who was this man? What are we to make of him? If nothing else, just curiosity should make us ask that. I mean, there is, by all accounts, no human individual that has ever influenced the course of human history like Jesus Christ did. Whatever else you think about him, that much is true, for better or for worse. He has changed human history more than any other single individual ever did, any more than any other group ever did. He has founded what is the world's largest religion. He has transformed the lives of billions of people. And so if nothing else, just out of curiosity, we should ask, what was, what's behind all of this? Who was this person? What is he about? Who could have pulled this off? It's also a crucial question because if the Bible is true, then everything hangs on your answer to this question. Who do men say that I am? The passage that Paul read said. Who do people say that I am? And upon that, according to the Bible, if in fact the Bible turns out to be true, everything depends. Ultimately, all of the questions of life are contained in this question. What do we exist for? What's the purpose of our life? Why are we here in the first place? How is life to be fulfilled? How can life be lived in a fulfilling way? How can I find happiness? How can I find contentment? How can I find, in the midst of my very troubled world, a little bit of peace? They're all found in the question, who was Jesus Christ? And I want to just outline five options, five possible responses, and I think that they, that they are exhaustively the five responses that one can give to this question, who was Jesus Christ? Who was Jesus? We know that his disciples claimed that he claimed that he was superhuman. That he was not just an ordinary man, not just an ordinary prophet, but that he was, in fact, the Son of God. He claimed to be divine, in other words. And it is a reasonable, I think, supposition when you hear someone claim to be the Son of God or claim to be divine, to immediately suspect that maybe the person doesn't have all their marbles. And so one option, as we confront the question of who is Jesus Christ, is to suspect that maybe he was just one of these crazy people who believe that they're God. We got one down in Waco, Texas right now. He thinks he is Jesus Christ. If nothing else, you can't accuse Jesus for being crazy because he thought it was Jesus, because he was Jesus. But maybe he was crazy because he thought it was God. The guy down in Waco, Texas seems to think something of the same thing, and he's got 160 people following him, which is, I think, more amazing than the fact that he claims to be divine. 
I, I don't know, maybe you've known people who have claimed to be God. Uh, we had one at the last church, not the last church I pastored, uh, but a long time ago, uh, out east. Um, <laughs> there may be some of them here. <laughs> I don't know. No, really, this is about 10, 15 years ago, out east, I was an associate pastor. Actually, I was an interim pastor now because the head pastor left, partly for this reason. In the middle of the service, or actually right towards the end, the person stood up. This is a person who desperately needed medication. Uh, and and uh, he was fine when he would take it, but sometimes he wouldn't take it. God would heal him of his problem, and uh, so he wouldn't go on medication. So he stands up and says, I am the I am. I am he. I am the one beside me. Not, there is none else. There used to be the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, but I have fired them. <laughs> I am the fourth person of the quaternity. Would the ushers please come forward? <laughs> and escort God out into the office. <laughs> What's even more bizarre, if then it could be more bizarre, is that we had to call the police, and the policemen came, two, two police officers came, and the police officers, because he wouldn't leave, and we had to get him to leave, and, and uh, we, actually we had to get him committed. And so the police officers come, and there's this, the police officer says, well, on what grounds are you having him committed? And I said, well, he thinks he's God, and that he fired the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And this officer said, <laughs> it scares me that a person like this carries a gun. The officer, <laughs> he's supposed to be protecting us. But he says, can you prove him wrong? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not kidding. And I laughed and joked. And he goes, no, I'm serious. I have to have grounds for committing him. And, you know, maybe, I mean, didn't Jesus say that he was divine? Who, how do you know the person isn't true? And this, this officer was absolutely serious. So I had to concoct some way of disproving God. And so I... We, I, I, I we got this plan where I said, I, I went to Eric, the, the crazy man, and, and I said, uh, Eric, uh, we just need to verify that you're divine. And God is omniscient, right? And he says, of course, God's omniscient. And you're God, right? And he goes, of course. In fact, he was going to send a flood on us uh, and, and kill the whole earth. He was so mad. But he says, of course, I know everything. And I said, so if we went next door and said a word to each other, you could tell us what that word is. And Eric, this is how far gone he was, he goes, of course. So I had to bring this police officer into the other room. I can't, it was so embarrassing. And I went to him, horse. <laughs> this guy has a straight face this whole time. We go back in and said, Eric, what was the word? And he said, TP or something like that. And so I said, lock him up. We took him away. <laughs> and God never loses in jeopardy. But the point is this. There's a lot of crazy people running around claiming to be God. I mean, about one out of every four people in an asylum are claiming to be God. And how do you know that Jesus wasn't one of these type of people? And he happened to get some followers. And there are, the police officers, evidence of this, people who would believe this kind of thing. And so maybe he just sort of snowed everyone by his craziness. A couple questions present themselves with regard to this option. You need to seriously ask yourself this question. Given what you know about lunatics, given what you know about madmen, given what you know about crazy people, and in our society you should know quite a bit because there are a lot of them around, could a lunatic speak the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, by all standards, even by those who oppose Christianity, they admit that the teachings of Jesus are among the most sublime and insightful ever given in, in world history. Could a lunatic or a madman or a crazy person do something like that? No way. <laughs> Hallelujah. 
out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. <laughs> no way! Uh-uh. And I didn't even plant her. I mean, it, that, was, that was the Spirit of God. Could a madman or a lunatic or a crazy have had the insight into human nature, into the inner workings of the human heart and the human mind like Jesus did? You see throughout the Gospels, the way he penetrates through facades, the way he gets to the heart of issues, the way he calls out a person's true colors. Could a madman or a lunatic have done that? Could a madman or a lunatic or a crazy person have demonstrated the kind of works and lived the kind of lifestyle that Jesus lived? Having a love for those who are unlovable, reaching out to those who are lost, to those who are outcast, to those who are ostracized, loving those that nobody else cared about. Could a madman or a lunatic have done such a thing? Could a madman or a lunatic have pulled off the miracles that he did healing the hand on the Sabbath, healing the blind? Over 30 miracles recorded, recorded in the Gospel, the last one being he rose from the dead. How does calling Jesus Christ a lunatic explain that? His reputation was that of being untarnished, of being, by all accounts, loving, selfless, and gracious. And that is something that lunatics just, just normally don't have about them. The option of thinking that Jesus was crazy, I think, is ruled out. There's no evidence to su suggest that he was crazy. All the evidence, in fact, suggests the opposite. So maybe there's a second alternative. Another thing that we got a lot of in our culture is a lot of charlatans, people who use religion to make a buck. There's a lot of dollars to be made in religion. There's a lot of gain to be made in religion. A lot of fame to be had in religion. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, he went on record as saying the fastest way, the easiest way to get rich in America is to start your own religion. And so this science fiction writer did just that and wrote his Dianetics and died a very, very wealthy man. Well, maybe Jesus was, was someone like that. Maybe he was just doing some kind of tricks and some kind of magic to get people to follow him, to get famous, to get wealthy. The world's known a lot of charlatans. A lot of TV evangelists are in it for their own money. They prey upon gullible senior citizens. There's a lot of New Age channelers who happen to be called to Hollywood. Isn't that interesting? And they channel uh, angels or truths or metaphysical principalities and powers that they know not what. They, they speak these divine truths and start their own New Age religion in Hollywood because all these Hollywood people follow them. And it's clear that they're doing it because there's a lot of money in Hollywood and a lot of people who will believe weird stuff in Hollywood. What better place to start a religion? So maybe Jesus was just someone like that. Maybe. But again, several questions pose themselves. Seems to me that if Jesus was a charlatan, he would still be a historical figure. But he'd go down in history as being one of the dumbest charlatans that ever lived. Because he didn't go to Hollywood, he didn't even go to the big wigs, the high society people. He spent his whole ministry appealing to the lower class, to the ostracized, to the outcasts. And there's no money there, and even if, you, even if they follow you, what does that do for you? What kind of fame is that, that you got a bunch of beggars following you? What kind of charlatan would do something like that? What kind of charlatan makes enemies with all the people that matter? Questioning those in powerful positions. Questioning those in authority. Rubbing people, saying the wrong things and doing the wrong things. Rubbing the wrong, right people the wrong way. What kind of charlatan would do that? What kind of charlatan? What lack of IQ must you have as a charlatan to end up getting yourself crucified? You're supposed to be in this for your own gain. And instead he gets himself crucified. 
Whatever else you can say about Jesus, I don't think that you can say it was a charlatan. None of the evidence indicates that. And besides, could a charlatan love as Jesus loved and live as Jesus lived and care about those who offer him nothing like Jesus cared? It's interesting to note that in all the miracles that he did and all the service that he did and all the teaching that he did, he never accepted a penny. Never accepted a penny. Never asked for a penny. Never was given a penny. Does that look like a charlatan to you? Whatever else you say about Jesus, he wasn't crazy, nor was he dishonest and deceitful. He was sane and he was sincere. Well, how about a third option? Maybe Jesus was just a great man. Maybe he was a great prophet, a great teacher. And maybe the disciples got a little carried away. You know, when they started to write these things down, they got a little carried away with their emotions and kind of exaggerated things. But Jesus is like a wonderful, wonderful person that you, you, know, you want to have as a friend. But, you know, he's not divine or son of God or savior of the world and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of, you know, exaggeration. But he was the bestest man that ever did live, as one person told me. And this is the position that Islam takes. Uh, Islam wants to regard Jesus as being a great prophet. The New Age movement largely wants to regard Jesus as being a great guru, one of many, of course, but he's a great man. You know, and you've got to respect great people. I think this is the most popular position in our culture. No one really wants to make enemies with Jesus just in case. I know I was like that. You know, he's like... <laughs> So he's a nice guy, yeah, you know, tip your hat to him and, and go on. But he's a great, great prophet. Gandhi thought this. Well, is this a viable option? Before I was a Christian, I visited for a while. In between my Catholic days and my uh, conversion days, I was, uh, uh, I used to go to a Unitarian church. A Unitarian church is kind of like just a great big free think tank. It was really pretty stimulating and, and some good came out of it. And in this Unitarian church, very liberal thinkers, whatever, uh, a sermon was given by a professor of history from the University of Minnesota. And the, lect the title of this lecture, or sermon, whatever you want to call it, was Why Socrates Was a Greater Man Than Jesus. That was the title of it. And this professor said this, A great man is judged by his ability to bring out the inherent goodness of other people. A great man, a great person is one who can actualize the potentiality of others and cause them to look within themselves and realize themselves and discover their own truth and find out their own brilliance. A good man, a great man, does not draw attention to himself or herself, but deflects attention. Doesn't want to become the object. Doesn't want to create dependency on him or her. That's what a great person does. And Socrates, by all accounts, by this criteria anyways, Socrates did that. But Jesus, this Unitarian preacher said, Jesus, well, he taught a lot of insightful things, I'll admit that. And this Jesus did a lot, apparently, by the record, just treating it like historical documents now, not like inspired things, but just as a historical record, it appears that he was a very loving, kind person and had an unblemished character, blah, 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 blah. But, but, the Unitarian preacher continued, judging from these documents, just reading them as historical records now with more or less reliable characteristics, You'd almost get the impression that Jesus thought he was God. In fact, it seems quite clear, judging from the response of his disciples, that he made himself an object of faith, an object of reverence. It appears that he actually made himself an object of worship. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is not something that a good man does. Good people, good people who are sane and sincere don't walk around doing this kind of stuff. And yet Jesus seems to have done just that. 
The option of thinking that Jesus was just a nice guy, a wonderful guy, just isn't given to us. What kind of nice guy goes around saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one goes to the Father except through me. Is that the teachings of just a good, ordinary Joe on the street? What kind of rabbi says, blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake? What kind of ordinary good prophet simply says, if you believe on me, you shall have everlasting life. If you believe on me, making themselves an object of faith. What kind of ordinary good rabbi goes around saying, if you see me, you see the Father? What would you think of me if I came up there and I said, hey, you guys, you know what? If you see me, you see God. Oh, that's just an ordinary good guy up there. If you see me, you see the Father. Or Jesus in John chapter 5 says, I've come that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. That all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. What would you think of a rabbi or some prophet or some Bethel professor saying to you, hey, you know, here's why I'm here. I just want a little respect. You know, nothing too much. Just sort of like, why don't you just sort of think of me the way you think of mm, God? <laughs> just want some R E S P E C T. <laughs> God respect is due to me. Well, you, you, you wouldn't think that I was just like a, a teaching of an ordinary great guy. You'd go back to uh, possibility number one and two. Either he's crazy or he's out to make a dollar. But the idea of him just being a good rabbi, I'm afraid, is a little bit ruled out. In fact, he says, I've come down from heaven. My friend Eric says things like that, but Eric I wouldn't call a great man. <laughs> because he says things like that. The options are ruled out. He makes himself an object of worship, which is why his disciples held him up as being the revelation of God, the word of God, and the image of God. Whatever else you say about Jesus, he wasn't crazy. He wasn't insincere, a charlatan, and he wasn't simply a good man. What about a fourth option? Maybe Jesus, maybe Jesus is simply a myth. Maybe the whole thing is concocted. Maybe the whole thing is made up. Maybe it's one big lie. I, I, I last year debated a professor of, of history at the University of Minnesota, an atheist, uh, in a public forum. We had about uh, 500, 600 people there. And the question was, is Jesus real? And this professor argued, or uh, how much can we know about the historical Jesus? And this professor argued that it's all a myth. This is all one big myth. And, you know, after all, we've, we've got Krishna, you know, racing about Krishna, k k k, -k krishna <laughs> Krishna was this uh, man in the, in the Bhagavad Gita who apparently claimed to be divine, and people worshipped him, and the Hare Krishnas today are jumping around with ponytails saying that he's divine. Maybe Jesus is like Krishna. It's just one big myth. Or about b b b, -b buddha they said Buddha was, uh, you know, you have stories about Buddha doing miracles, stories of Buddha being born of a virgin even. In one of the sutras, there's this giant elephant that comes down and overshadows his mother, and, he, and she's born of a virgin. I'm not kidding you. <laughs> I don't know where they got the elephant from. So maybe Jesus is simply a myth. The whole thing was made up. Let me respond to that. There are several important differences between the accounts of Jesus and the accounts of Krishna and the accounts of Buddha. The Krishna story of the Bhagavad Gita is told like a once upon a time, long, long ago and far, far away. There once lived a great knight named Lord Krishna. And then it tells the story of Krishna with a lot of wild things going on. But there's no one around when the story is told who could verify it or falsify it. This is told thousands of years after the events are even claimed to have happened, though the events never did happen. They never give us a time. They never give us a place. They never give us eyewitnesses. With Buddha, the stories about Buddha, 
come around, uh, come about through Mahayana Buddhism, uh, about seven centuries, five to seven centuries after Buddha died. Five to seven centuries. In a pagan culture that was prone towards superstition. So it's not that surprising that this man who they revere kind of got elevated in status and they ended up telling stories about his miracles, whatever. But it happened seven centuries after he lived. When we deal with the person of Jesus Christ, the accounts that we have of Jesus Christ are written by people who knew Jesus Christ. They're written by people who walked with him, ate supper with him, traveled with him, saw him do the deeds that he did. We're talking about eyewitnesses. All historians agree that Christianity began in the first third of, this, uh, of the first century in 33 AD in Jerusalem. They started preaching about Jesus Christ in the same place, in the same location, at the same time, and among the same people that Jesus interacted with. This isn't some long, long ago and far, far away tale. This isn't something that happened 700 years ago. This is contemporary stuff at the time it's being told. It'd be one thing if I were to try to, if I wanted to start a new religion, if I said, hey, you know what? Uh, long, long ago and far, far away, there once was some place or other, at some time or other, and it was some people or other, and this guy was a great man, and he rose from the dead. Okay, nice story. Prove it. Can't do. Happened long, long ago and far, far away. But what if I were to start a religion, uh, let's say, on the basis of Martin Luther King? He died 20 years ago today. If I try to tell you, you know what? Martin Luther King, they say he died, but he really didn't die. No, no, he rose from that tomb. His tomb is still empty. He appeared to over 500 people. That's right. And, and, and they're still around. You can, you can check with them. And he did a lot of miracles. He, he raised other dead people. He healed the blind. He healed withered hands. He did a lot of great deeds, blah, 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 blah. Now, follow Martin Luther. Make him Lord and Savior of your life. All of a sudden, I got some problems. Because a lot of you were alive when Martin Luther was alive. The majority of you were alive when Martin Luther was alive, and you know a little bit about Martin Luther. And we have people who walked with Martin Luther and talked with Martin Luther and were opponents of Martin Luther, and his tomb is still with us. And so I couldn't pull this story off, could I? Especially if there were Christians around who wanted to oppose the birth of a new cult that would rival their own, rival their own religion. When we're talking about Jesus Christ, we're talking about the gospel being preached in Jerusalem days after Jesus mysteriously disappeared, after his tomb showed up mysteriously empty in Jerusalem, and there's thousands of hostile eyewitnesses who are around who want nothing more than to put this new religion, this new heresy in their eyes, put it under the ground. And all they'd have to do to do it is to produce the body of Jesus. Hey, he didn't rise from the dead, there's his corpse. All they'd have to do is to, is to deny that he did miracles, to deny the stories about him. But that they never do. Even the Talmud, the collection of Jewish writings around the time of Jesus, they never deny that Jesus did miracles, and they, did, they never deny that the tomb was empty. They try to explain it other ways. But... What went on in the life of Jesus was a public thing, and the, and, and, and the disciples appealed to public facts. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 2, he says, this Jesus Christ lived and died among us, and his tomb is still with us to this day. David's tomb, we know where that is, so also with Jesus' tomb. They name times, they name places, and it can be verified, and it can be falsified, but it never is. The second thing is this. What motive would the disciples have for making up this myth? Think about it now. If I'm going to concoct a story and start a new religion on the basis of Martin Luther King, I've got to have a reason for doing it. I'm getting something out of it. If I'm going to intentionally make up a story here, it's because there's something in it for me. What do the disciples have to gain? 
Did they live wealthy lives? Did they drive around in limousines and have Cadillacs and have nice, live in those nice hotels or whatever? No, they did not. The disciples all got persecuted, and they eventually died martyrs' deaths for saying what they said. And you don't die for a lie. There's no motive for fabrication. The final thing is that if you read their writings, there's no evidence of fabrication. It doesn't have any of the qualities of fabrication. It doesn't have any of the qualities that myth usually has to it. They, they, they name names. They, they, they tell us that Jesus was born under Quirinius. That's the time. Governor Quirinius in Bethlehem, crucified under Pontius Pilate, buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who was the head of the Sadducees. You don't name prominent people like that if you're trying to pull off just a big fish story. What's more is in the Gospels, you have them consistently recording facts against themselves. I mean, if you're going to start a religion like Ron Hubbard's Dianetics or whatever, you make it look good, you polish it up, you make it sellable, you say what people want to hear, right? Read the Gospels. It's not what people want to hear. If you're making up a story, you don't, you don't portray the disciples like they're portrayed. I mean, they come across as kind of dumb, a little dull, spiritually inadequate. Peter's always cutting off a guy's ear, you know. <laughs> Jesus, I told you not to do that, and he has to put the ear back on. <laughs> He's always blowing it. John is saying, Ah, oh, Lord, why don't you call down thunder from heaven and destroy this town? I mean, they're, they're a bunch of rednecks. <laughs> hey, with Jesus, we can really kick some, you know. Ha, ha, ha. If you're trying to sell a new religion, you don't portray the, 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 the head of the religion, the founders of the religion, in this light. They're, this is a very poor sales pitch. Or you have Jesus. If you're going to make up a story about Jesus, don't put in his mouth things like this. If you're trying to get followers, don't say you have Jesus say things like, whoever's going to follow me must take up their cross. Whoever's going to follow me, the servant is not above the master. You must prepare to suffer and prepare to die. He even tells them, those who follow me will be persecuted. You will suffer many things for my namesake. Doesn't that just make you want to join this new religion? <laughs> it's not the case. The worst one, the most astounding one is, is this. In this theory, they're trying to sell Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They're trying to sell him as God incarnate, right? That's what the whole lie is about. So how do you sell it? Well, Jesus, when he's on the cross, I got a great idea. This will really sell it. This will convince everybody. Let's have him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why on earth would anyone put that into the mouth of Jesus unless it was just because Jesus actually said it? What worse thing could Jesus possibly say if you're trying to put on a nice show here and trying to present everything nice and polished? What worse thing could you have Jesus say than the one who is supposed to himself be God crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound like an ordinary Messiah to you? Does that sound like a sellable product? No, I think there's a profound theological point in all of this. But I don't want to make it this morning. The point I'm making this morning is this. It's not what you'd expect if they were concocting a story. There's no evidence that the disciples lied. There's no motive for them to lie. And it would be impossible for them to pull off this lie in this context if they had wanted to. Jesus was not a charlatan. Jesus was not crazy. Jesus was not just an ordinary man. Whatever else you say about it, Jesus was no myth. So where does that leave us? with option number five. The only option that remains is to see Jesus as being who he said he was and being who his disciples said he was. There are no other alternatives. Amen. Could it be? Could it be that 
God really is this crazy about us human beings? Jesus wasn't crazy, but sometimes you might think God is. If God would become a human being, like the gospel says, could it be that God loves us this much? He's this passionately in love with us? Could that be true? Could it be true that when we look to Jesus Christ, we're looking at the one who was, in fact, God come down to earth, God becoming a human being? Could it be that God loves us so much that he would allow himself to be whipped, to be disfigured, doesn't even look like a human being after he's whipped so much, and pierced and mocked and spit upon and crowned with thorns and finally crucified? Could it be that God loves us this much that the almighty God of this universe who created all the stars of space and holds every molecule in existence and holds you in existence right now, that this God loves you so much, he did that for you? Could it be true? And all the evidence suggests that it is. There's no other way of getting around it. But not only the evidence of your mind, but I want to appeal to your heart this morning. If you're here and Jesus Christ is not the Lord and is not the Savior of your life, I've been appealing to your mind thus far, but now I want to appeal it to your heart. Because as the mind leads you to the truth of Christianity by virtue of the evidence, the Holy Spirit leads you to Christianity by the virtue of the pull on your heart. And right now, the Holy Spirit's pulling on your heart. In this man, who is divine, is the fullness of life. The fullness of what you have been always seeking for. You're hungry. You know you're hungry. And you try to feed yourself with all sorts of different kinds of food. From the attention you can get, to the people you can get to love you, to the things you can accomplish, but it leaves you empty. And the person of Jesus Christ is the fullness of the life that you were created to have. And the final proof of it all is this. When you make him the Lord and Savior of your life, it's not just a, you're not just being related to a historical philosophical truth. You enter into a relationship with the real Jesus Christ who is present in this place right now. And you see him for yourself. You relate to him for yourself. You begin to talk to him. He begins to speak to you. And you grow into the reality of the Jesus Christ who's alive. This morning, my prayer for you is that you'd accept him as the Lord and Savior of your life. Why wait any longer? To enthrone him, to surrender to him and say, Lord, I accept your sacrifice. What you did, I accept as being for me. And I want, I want to no longer be in the driver's seat of my life. I want you to be in the driver's seat of my life. The Bible makes it ever so simple. It says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. And I encourage you, as we're dismissed, there'll be three, four, five people up here facing you up here at the altar. Just come forward and say, I would like to become a believer this morning and accept him into your heart. Can we stand and close in prayer? And Daryl, would you come and play, turn your eyes upon Jesus? Lord, right now I pray that by the power of your spirit you'd be pulling people, be pulling people. Draw, Lord God, people unto you. You said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people unto me, Lord. And so I, we've tried to lift you up this morning, and I pray to God that you'd be drawing right now, Lord. By your spirit, draw. By your love, draw, Lord. I believe, God, that there are some here this morning who don't know you and are on the fence. And I pray, Lord God, that this could be their birthday. That they could be born again by your spirit working in their life, Lord. Call them forward. Show them the truth of who you are. Show them, Lord God, what your secret ambition really was. Your secret ambition was and is 
to enter into an eternal, loving relationship with them. Your secret ambition is to do everything possible to make that happen.